0: welcome to the Saint podcast thanks for joining us our vision is to bring hope to the people of east london and i'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk Oh, amazing. Well, guys, it's amazing to be with you here today. I used to spend all my Sundays here serving in the youth at the back and just seeing how this church has moved along and hearing even stuff about the finance and how the church is resourcing hope to the people in East London is amazing. If you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them out and would you turn to John 2? If you're tuning in online, would you find John 2? We are in the miracles of Jesus. We are at the wedding in Cana in Galilee and we find ourselves in John's gospel where he wants to let us know one thing, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's happened in the past. He starts off with this amazing almost poem in John 1 saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He's saying, look, Jesus and the Father are one. He then goes on to say that through him all things were made. And you need to know today that your life is held and sustained in the hands of the Father. The psalmist would say, I wake because you, O Lord, sustain me. And then he goes on by saying, He is the light, the light of all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Can we say amen? Amen. And what he wants you to know is not only is he the fulfillment of the path, but he's the light of our future. And as we speak about spiritual fitness and we come into the new year, we need to ground ourselves in that narrative. And the reason why is because the stories we listen to form the story we live. That is the narratives that we feed ourselves, outwork themselves in our lives. And we need to acknowledge this that there are competing narratives in this world. Narratives that lead to faith, hope, and life, and narratives that lead to fear, anxiety, down. Narratives that make us grow and narratives that make us shrink. There's this beautiful image that Al gave us last week of firing arrows, and today I want to encourage you again to take up an arrow and fire it at the narratives in your life that may have made you shrink there's this story of a granddad as he imparts wisdom on his grandson. And he goes to his grandson and he said, look, I need to tell you this story, but there are two wolves inside of me, and they are fighting. One is evil. He is anger, envy, greed, arrogance, resentment, lie, and hear this, ego. The other is good. He is peace, joy, love, kindness, solemnity, humility generosity truth and compassion and he says to the young boy they are fighting to the death and the young boy kind of wide-eyed leans in and he says well granddad which one's going to win and he says this the one you feed the narratives we feed ourselves are key and I don't know about you but the last two years the narratives have been pretty bleak We have, as you would have seen today, my son running around trying to take the microphone because he thought he was preaching. (laughs) We have a son who has two years without seeing his grandparents. And if you have kids or grandparents in the room, you'll know the pain of that. And as every year came forward and we had these expectations that maybe we would see our loved ones, our expectations have dropped and I've realized I've had this reality where my capacity for hope has just shrunk a little bit. And what I would hate for us as a community is take the disenchantments, the disappointments into the year ahead where God is calling us, what I believe, to the miraculous. That's why it's so important to get engaged with what's on your seat because that is firing an arrow of hope into our communities in East London. Amen. So as we, agree, uh, as we engage today with the miracles of Jesus, would we believe that these signs of restoration are for the here and now? Amen. I'm going to keep saying amen, guys. I'm loving it. Well, it's great to be with you. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we come here today and as we listen to your word, whether we're sat at home online, whether we are in the room, would you just fill us with hope so that we may overflow by the power of the Holy Spirit? And Jesus, the light of all mankind, would you illuminate the dark things that keep us captive from the fullness of life you call us to in Jesus' name? Amen. So John 2, it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciple had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said, they have no more wine. And he said this, which comes across a little bit rude if I'm going to be honest, Jesus. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six jars of water, the kind used for the Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servant, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. He then told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drew drew it knew. He called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheap wine after. The, guests have, have, the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana in Galilee was the first of the sign through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. And if you're Anglican, this is the word of the Lord. Come on! I bet everyone at home is saying that. Um, Amen. Well, I remember when I um, first... Came, thank you, Al. Um, I remember when I first came to this message at the age of 23, opening the Gospel of John, a Gospel I'd been given to. And you get to John 2 after John 1, which is amazing. And you kind of go, if you're 23 years old and you've never been in a church, you go. Christians drink? <laughs> like, what is going on here? All my people I knew Christian growing up were like the most straight-edged people. And I'm like, not only do Christians drink, but drink, but, like Jesus is keeping the party going. This is like flipping my narrative. I, I wonder if that's why we had a brewery as a church. But as I look deeper at the text, I'm like, it's not the point. It's not the point. Move on. As I read it a bit more, I was like, if my mum was reading this, and mum, I know you're watching at home, it's not that if you listen to what your mum says, miracles happen. No, there's something deeper, deeper going on in the text, and we find it just in the first line, because this wedding is a sign that points us to the story we are in, and it's covered in symbology. It says this, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. The third day. So the religious group at this time, what you need to know is they would get married on a Tuesday, which they saw as the third day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And this held this kind of symbolism because in Genesis, in Genesis it talks about the third day of creation and on the third day God said, it is good, it is good, twice. But not only on that, if you read from the book of Exodus about the the, the people of Israel and their exile, at the mountain when God gives the commandments, he gives them on the third day and it's the covenant between God's people and God. And that's what happens on a wedding day. So we know that not only are they getting married on the third day, the Tuesday, but this is important. It's the first day of the wedding feast. And what you need to know is weddings are a massive deal. If anyone's engaged right now, Know that it gets harder and harder. Has anyone like experienced the stress of a wedding, whether it may be bridesmaid, groom, bride? Weddings are a big deal, but in this context, you have to like times that by a lot. It gets like huge. When you get engaged to be married, you start what's called a betrothal period, where essentially the bridegroom, the husband, the husband to be would go away and he would build a house, which is pretty crazy. Like a year to six months, he would go away and build a house. And potentially build a house on the side of his parents' house. And again, mum, if you're at home, we don't want to come live next to you. It's absolutely crazy. And I don't know about me, I couldn't build a birdcage in six months. Maybe if you're Kaz's husband, Robin, who's like carpenter turned vicar, you could build a house. If you're tuning in line and you don't know who Robin is, go to the staff page and you'll recognise him by the size of his arms before you even see his name. This guy can build a house. And essentially what would happen when the preparations were done, the bridegroom would come to the bride's house and he said, everything is ready and celebrations erupt and people would start coming up and the wedding day would start to begin on the third day and this was an amazing day both the bride and the groom would start fasting and there are these beautiful, beautiful symbolic things that would happen you know one of my favourite things is on the day the bride would walk around the groom seven times like the walls of Jericho coming down to bring down his emotional barrier so he could receive them fully just picture Kaz walking around Robin singing her new new single, which is on Spotify right now if you want to go check it out. I want to be closer to you. I want to be closer. It was this amazing day and everything's going well, but we get to this point where what happens? Mary comes to Jesus and the wine has run out. And most of you are thinking like, when the alcohol runs out behind the bar, it just means my family can't drink my bank account dry. And you're like, oh, when the wine runs out is a good time. But at this time, it holds a great amount of symbolism. You see, the wine stands for the abundance and the quality of love. People would sit round at the wedding, drinking the wine, being like, isn't this amazing? Like the quality of the love in this couple. These weddings would go on from three to seven days. I mean, that is crazy. I'm like done after 9 p.m. But these weddings would go on and wine would keep coming as a sign of hospitality and the guests would say, oh, the abundance and the longevity of love in this relationship. But what happens in this story is the wine runs out. And we get this insight to what essentially is behind the scenes of bad hospitality in an honor-shame culture. The husband comes and says, everything is ready, but it's not the guess would have been like this, my glass is empty and the love of this marriage is empty. On the first night of a free day minimum celebration, the wine has run out and the abundance of love is absent for this relationship. And in one commentary I read, it said, when you do bad hospitality in this culture, it's the equivalent of stealing. I don't know if you've ever turned up to those like 10 o'clock weddings where they don't feed you to dinner time and you get like hangry. It's like that times a lot. Actually, a better illustration is fortunately uh, in my previous work, I was able to travel and I actually went to Egypt. And I was with Lauren, are you in the room? No, okay, Lauren's gone. Anyway, it was Lauren who was here earlier on today and she's really wonderful and she was with our friend Riley and they were like, look, we need a toilet break. And we were driving along in Egypt, kind of in the middle of the nowhere and we came to a house. And you have to imagine this, like we need the bathroom should we knock on the door of a house? And I'm gonna be honest, I live in Shoreditch and I love Shoreditch, but I'm more used to people using the bathroom on my house than knocking on the door and asking to come to the bathroom in my house. So we knock on this door and we're like, we are so sorry. And they're like, no, 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 no. Come in, come in, come in. And they, they actually go, actually, sit down. And we're like, okay. There's, there's nine of us, and we're sat down in the house. And what do they do? They bring out tea for us. And the girls go and use the bathroom, and we're like, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. This is so kind. We get going. No, 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 no. They bring out fresh watermelon. And we're just like, whoa, this wouldn't happen in Shoreditch. And then we go to get up, and then they're like, whoa, well, whoa, we'll sit down. And they bring out sweets and pastries. And we're like, what has happened? And then I'll never forget what happened next. As we go to leave, I see this woman walking down the corridor. She's aided by her daughter. And as she walks near, close to us, she puts her hand on my arm and she says, look, I'm so sorry we didn't realise you were coming. If you would stay just for a couple of hours, we would cook you lunch. And the more of that story is just knock on doors and ask for lunch. But no, (laughs) No, hospitality is absolutely key in this story and what you need to know is the drink has run out on the first day, the husband wasn't ready and what would have happened is shame would have come upon this family and this couple before the story had even started. Some of you will resonate with that today. That stories that wanted to start in your life never progressed because of the shame because of expectations that have been put on your life. You know, shame can seem like a small thing, but the reality is shame has the profound ability to perpetuate itself throughout your life, singing the narrative, you are not worthy, you are not worthy, you are not worthy. You know, when the human heart has shame in it, you disconnect from what God says about you and you open your ears to the condemnation of the world. But the good news is, what does Jesus do? He turns the water into wine and covers their shame with glory. Amen. He shows us this beautiful model of miracles. And you need to hear this today, that when our disappointing humanity comes into collision with Jesus' divinity, we experience the miraculous. That when the wine runs out in our life, when the things that we put our hope in run out in our life, He meets us with a miracle because at the end of our weakness, we find his steadfast power. Sorry, I said that with some aggression because it's so, so real. Look, this time of year, I'm going to be super honest with you, is a hard time of year for me. It's a year that that shame I'm speaking about comes to the surface. We've had the joy of raising this beautiful son we have called Abel. He's 18 months now. And over Christmas, post-Renaissance, was anyone at Renaissance? Gosh, it's amazing. If you're tuning in online, wherever you're on the other side of the world, get a ticket for Renaissance. Stuff happens. It's amazing. But we had this speaker called John Tyson. And I went away and read one of his books called The Intentional Father. It starts off with this amazing image of Greco-Roman culture. and He talks about raising a child, starts with the day of birth where the child is brought to the dad and he raises them up in this like Mufasa Lion King moment where it's like the circle of life. Cass. get me on BVs, yeah? (laughs) The flip side of that story is if he's displeased with the child, he'll put the child to the ground. And 31 years ago, on Christmas Day, the dad that I never met called he called to speak to my sister on the phone and heard a giggly voice in the background. And he said to my mum, who is that? My mum said, I never told you he was here, but that that was your son. And that moment was the last day I heard from my father. And in that moment, it was the moment that I read about that brings up that shame and that guilt where he put me down to the ground. And the perpetuation of that is my birthday was two weeks ago and I struggle with it every year, and Tando's really good at being my best celebrator, but I struggle to just celebrate my life sometimes. Pain and shame has this powerful effect on our life, and we need, like Al said last week, to fire an arrow about it, but the good news is, at the age of 23, I found a new narrative. Amen? And I put myself in that story. So kind. I put myself in that story of faith, hope, and love, and everything changed. He brought my shame and suffering to Him, and He's turned it into glory, and He took this orphan and made him a father. And that's as I stand here today to say that this is the best news you will ever hear. Do you know there was a narrative written before you were born? Do you want to hear it? It says, For he chose us in him before creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption, to sonship, to daughtership through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. There is a story that has been written for you. So no matter what story you occupy, what shame is being put upon you in your life, I want you to know is the wine in this story is a sign of the one who turns our shame into glory. And I'm gonna invite the band up now as I just end this time. And if you've been joining in line and this has been resonating with your heart, the people will be online to speak to you about this. But this wedding feast isn't just about this wedding feast, it's about a banquet. It's about the end of the narrative we read in John's other book, the book of the Revelation. And it says this in Isaiah 25 as he prophesies towards it. On the mountain of the Lord Almighty, I will prepare a feast of rich food for all people. A banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. On the mountain, he will destroy the shrouds that enfold all people. The sheet that covers all nation, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away every tear from all the faces and remove his people's disgrace from the earth. And then the last word says, the Lord has spoken. The best part I find in this story is the end. You know, the wine comes to the master of the banquet and it's really just a moment of confusion because he calls the bridegroom forward and he's like, we're drunk and you've given us the best wine. You don't know how this works. What happens is when people have alcohol, everything after tastes really good. And if you've ever had a kebab late at night, you'll know that's true. He's like, what is going on here? Why have you saved the best wine till last? And what you need to know, in prophecies in the Old Testament, good wine is a sign of the presence of God. And what he does in this moment is take it from cleansing jars, jars that the Jews would have used to cleanse themselves so they could go into the temple to make sacrifices. And in one moment and in offering this glass of wine, he says, not only am I the good wine, not only has God saved the best till now, but I'm the one who will take your shame and turn it into glory. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.